Today's lesson is the conclusion of this study of Daniel chapter 11, and there are plenty of things in the lesson today that will cause you to take a step back and think, so stay tuned. All right, we're broadcasting live to YouTube, and I do this on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock a.m. Mountain Time. And if you want to hear more of this type of content, you can tune into Final Fight Bible Radio. I air my Bible studies and sermons on Final Fight on Fridays at 9 o'clock a.m. and p.m. Mountain Time. And I also do a live broadcast on Fridays at 10 o'clock a.m. Mountain Time. And if you enjoy this content, subscribe, share it with your friends and family. And if you're interested in additional in-depth studies, I have four books that I've published that are available through Final Fight, Amazon, and Google eBooks. And if you would like to support the ministry of Final Fight Bible Radio and or these Bible studies, uh, you can do so through the various links on the websites and on this channel. Uh, thank you for those of you that do support. I appreciate it. And these type of in-depth Bible studies would most likely not be possible without your contribution. So I'm grateful and I thank you. All right. So uh, today is the final lesson to this. Whoops. What did I? The final. There we go. The final lesson in this series of Daniel chapter 11. And as you recall, uh, I've been going through this passage of Daniel chapter 11 and verses 40 through 45 and interpreting it from the standpoint of the second advent and the events that transpire uh, from the second advent and onward. Now, as I've said, as I've pointed out, there's a few places in this interpretation that are kind of sticking points and maybe don't fit quite well, but... The only other Bible-believing, literal interpretation of this passage that's really out there is this idea that Egypt is going to rebel against the Antichrist in the last days of the Great Tribulation period, and that's how it's generally, that's the general interpretation of verse 40 through 45, which, you know, even though the way that I'm presenting it may not always be perfect, I at least have some scripture to back my theory up, whereas this other general theory that most people seem to accept has absolutely zero scripture to back it up. So I think I'm okay with uh, where we're at. But anyway, I'm going to give you a little bit more this morning and why I think verses 40 through 45 are the second advent as opposed to the Egypt rebellion theory. All right, so in verse 44, it says, But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. And as I told you last week, uh, this is possible that this could be Jesus Christ, and essentially this is at the end of the millennium, and essentially he's been ruling and reigning for a thousand years, and then in verse 44 it says, but tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him, trouble King Jesus, not in the sense that he's scared or anything like that, but in the sense that for a thousand years the world has enjoyed peace and rest, and now at the end of this thousand year period, there's a rebellion that's forming and is causing the Lord to be disquieted or uh, uh, frustrated or angered, something like that. All right, so we have, uh, therefore he, Jesus, shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. Now, as I said, normally this is interpreted as the Antichrist hearing tidings out of the east and out of the north, and it's right around here. And he's hearing tidings about the second advent, and so he goes forth with great fury to destroy, and then that's at Jerusalem and the second advent. That's how that verse is usually interpreted. But again, if you're going to go with that, then you have to interpret verse 40 through verse 43 as some random king of Egypt rebelling against the Antichrist. And that just doesn't seem to fit. All right, so the things that's troubling Jesus is these tidings that are coming out of the east and out of the north, if you go with this particular interpretation that I'm going with. 
All right, so the north is actually, it says the tidings are coming out of the east and out of the north. And this is consistent with what the Bible says in Ezekiel uh, chapter 38. Ezekiel chapter 38, talking about the, uh, basically Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 describe the battle of Armageddon and also the battle of Gog and Magog. Except the weird oddity of Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 39 is that these two events are backwards in the sense that chapter 38 is talking about the battle of Gog and Magog at the end of the millennium. And chapter 39 is talking about the battle of Armageddon at the start of the millennium. Now, the Bible does things like that all the time, so I don't have a problem that they're not in chronological order like that. But it's an important little detail to pay attention to. And I'm not going to go through all the details of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Obviously, that's a whole other study in and of itself. But what you want to notice, and the reason why uh, sometimes uh, these things get confused, and Ezekiel 38 and 39 are read together and kind of crammed together, you can't do that. Because in Ezekiel chapter 39, what you're dealing with is it has uh, basically at the after the battle in Ezekiel chapter 39, it says that they're going to be cleaning up this area where, where the Antichrist is destroyed. They're going to be cleaning this area up for seven months. It talks about burying bodies and burying bones for seven months. And then it says for seven years, they're going to be burning the weapons with fire. You read about that in Ezekiel chapter 39. That's not going to work if you're going to apply it over here, because we know at the end of the Battle of Gog and Magog, the, the heavens and the earth are burned up, and then there's a great white throne. There's not seven years of burning weapons after this battle. After this battle, the heavens and the earth are destroyed, essentially, and the great white throne occurs, and then God creates a new heaven and a new earth. But that's not what you read about in Ezekiel 39. In Ezekiel 39, you have seven years of time transpiring after this battle, which again puts you in the Battle of Armageddon, also in Ezekiel chapter 39, you read about Israel at the end of the chapter finally being restored and put back into their land and reunited with their God. That's not going to work over here. Israel's been restored for a thousand years. That wouldn't even make sense in, in that context. So chapter 38 is dealing with here, or I mean chapter 39, I'm sorry, is dealing with the battle of Armageddon, second advent. Ezekiel chapter 38, you know, is dealing with a completely different battle. In chapter 38, you have this weird situation where Israel and Jerusalem has been dwelling at rest and is in safety. And the verse even says that, it, that they dwell without walls with their city. Well, that's not peace and safety with Jerusalem at the second advent. Are you crazy? <laughs> There's anything but peace and safety at the second advent after three and a half years of great tribulation? No way. That's not going to work. So these two chapters cannot just be crammed together. They're not talking about the same thing. You have to rightly divide the word of truth. And Israel is dwelling in peace and safety after a thousand years of Jesus ruling and reigning on the, on the throne from Jerusalem. All right. So in uh, chapter 38, dealing with the battle of Gog and Magog over here, the Bible says in verse 15, referring to Gog, essentially the return of Satan, it says, therefore, verse 14, Son of man, prophesy and say unto Gog, Thus saith the Lord God, In that day when my people of Israel dwelleth safely, shalt thou not know it? And thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses and a great company and a mighty army. 
And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land, and it shall be in the latter days. And I will bring thee against my land, that the heathen may know me, know me when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes. All right, so the Bible says that this battle, Satan is coming out of the north parts. And that's what we read in verse 44. Tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble King Jesus. All right, Satan's said to come from the north, so that fits. All right, and let's see, what else do we have here? Verse 17, thus saith the Lord God, Art thou not he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them? Verse 18, And it shall come to pass at the same time, when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face. Right? And uh, we're going to read about that in verse 44, that Jesus is going to go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. So you have the fury of the Lord matching in Ezekiel 38 and Daniel 11. All right, so Jesus is going to be pretty angry when this bat, when this uh, these uh, rebels that are numbered as the sand of the seashore, innumerable, like it says there in Revelation. Jesus, King Jesus, is going to be furious that these people are coming against him and trying to overthrow him and the government that he and his father have set up. All right, so Jesus is angry. He's a little bit disquieted. You might even say that he's troubled, <laughs> all right? Verse 19, For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel, referring to that battle of Gog and Magog. So recall that being uh, fretted, we looked at some of those verses last week about God being troubled and about Jesus being troubled, and how the word troubled was associated with the word fretted, and fretted has to do with being disquieted or trembling or shaking, okay? So it's uh, almost as though Jesus is so angry and the fury is coming up in King Jesus' face that he starts to tremble in anger and his trembling ends up shaking the entire earth at the same time. And uh, have you ever been so mad that you are literally shaking? <laughs> that sounds like what's going to be happening right here at the end of the millennium. All right, so the, the imagery is as, if, is, a, is as if Jesus is shaking in anger at this rebellion, and, and the entire earth begins to shake with his shaking. And again, it's not like this is some kind of sinful anger. The Bible says, be ye angry and sin not. All right, so obviously there's a type of anger that is righteous indignation, as we would say, and that's the type of anger and fury that Jesus is going to have at this time. All right, verse 20 of Ezekiel 38 says... Uh, so that so this shaking, and then it says, so that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall be shall fall to the ground. All right. So Revelation twenty then goes on to describe that the heavens and the earth are going to flee away at this time. 2 Peter 3.12 uses the word dissolved to describe this event. Almost like if you have like a, a glass container and you've got, you know, an ant farm or something. You've got these little hills of mountain. If you shake the dirt, everything settles down and it, the mountains fall. You know, the, the, everything smooths out. It's kind of like a dissolving. Everything's shaking so bad that things are just falling apart. 
Second Peter chapter 3, verse 12 says, Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. Okay, that's a different term. That's the day of the Lord is always spoken about right here. Now the Bible uses the, word, the term the day of God. That's going to put you over here. Looking forth and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. All right? So back to Daniel chapter 11, verse 44. The Bible is consistent in its description of this battle of Gog and Magog and what takes place. The armies come against Jesus, and there's a shaking, there's fury, there's fire, and uh, there's utter destruction. But utter destruction, not just of Jesus' enemies, but of the entire universe at that time. All right, verse 44. But tidings out of the east, let's see, let's go back to this. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall, which uh, east and out of the north, so this is going to be associated with the location of the land of Magog. All right, there's a lot of debate as to where Magog is. But wherever this direction is, if verse 44 is in reference to the battle of Gog and Magog, then it stands to reason that the tidings out of the east and out of the north is a reference to where Magog is. And it shall trouble him, Jesus, therefore he, Jesus, shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many, which is like what we read there in Ezekiel chapter 38. So we can... Conclude, <coughs> conclude from Ezekiel 38 that Satan is going to come from the north, okay? He's going to come out of the north to attack, and I can't necessarily find any verses that specifically state that Satan comes out of the east as well at this battle of Gog and Magog, um, but there are a few things that we can be said. So basically what I'm saying is Daniel 11.44 says east and north, and Ezekiel 38 only says the north doesn't say anything about the East. So what do we have there? What's up with that? All right, well, there's a few things that could be said. Um, in type, when Nebuchadnezzar attacked Israel, he was said to have come from the North, even though he was technically from the East over in Babylon. So he came, yes, he came, when he attacked Israel, finally he came down straight from the North, around the Sea of Galilee, straight down. So in that sense, he came from the North and the East. So maybe there's something like that going on. Um, if you want to make the land of Magog, Russia, or the USSR, which is the general interpretation of Meshach and Tubal, is going to be Moscow and Tubalsk is how it's generally interpreted. If you want to say that uh, the land of Magog is Russia, well, then you'd have Satan coming down from Russia from the northeast. Maybe that's the tidings out of the east and the north. You could say that. Um, if you study out Meshach in the Bible... There is another potential location for the land of Magog, and it's not Russia, and it's not Turkey, but it's in an eastern direction from Israel, and if, it's, if that is the correct location, then you would have Satan coming from the east with his army, and then coming up around the Sea of Galilee, coming down from the north. And that location, you find a reference to, to it, possibly, in Psalms 120 verse 5. And what's interesting about Psalms 120, verse 5, is that in the chapter, you have it starting out with uh, distress and crying unto the Lord, and this frustration that David is dealing with, with lying lips and a deceitful tongue. But then uh, he says, what shall be done uh, given unto thee, or what shall be done unto, unto thee, thou false tongue? From the, in the context of Satan going forth to deceive the whole world, that's an interesting 
That's an interesting thing to say. Here we go again, just like in Genesis chapter 3, the deceiver is now deceiving mankind once again, just like he did back in Genesis chapter 3. And then it says, what's going to be given to the false tongue? Verse 4, sharp arrows of the mighty with coals of juniper. So, fire and destruction, like what Jesus will give uh, Satan at the battle of Gog and Magog. But then look at this, Psalms 120 verse 5, woe is me that I sojourn in Meshach. Okay, that's interesting. Comparing scripture with scripture, we have Meshach right here in Psalms 120 verse 5. But notice what Meshach is connected with. Where's Meshach? That's kind of the big question. Nobody seems to really know. Linguistically, it's connected with Moscow. But is that really right? I mean, what does Moscow have to do with anything, honestly, in the Bible? <laughs> he says, woe is me that I sojourn in Meshach. And now he's going to do that tautology thing where he loops around and it looks like he's saying the same thing with different terminology. Woe is me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. Kedar, well, we know where Kedar is. Kedar is northwest Saudi Arabia, right in this area somewhere over here. So, and then look at what verse 6 says. I'm trying to read Psalms 120, wondering if it's in the context of the battle of Gog and Magog. And look at what verse 6 says. It says, my soul hath long dwelt with him that hateth peace. Oh, well, you got a bunch of people that are frustrated and aggravated in the millennium. It says in one place in Isaiah, I just think about off the top of my head, it says uh, the wicked, something to the effect of the wicked will, even in the land of peace, the wicked will not behold the face of the Lord or something to that effect. And so you've got these people that are disgruntled and upset with Jesus ruling and reigning. And it, and it says in Psalms 120, my soul hath long dwelt with him that hateth peace. Millennium. I am for peace. But when I speak, they, the rebels, are for war. That's an interesting context. And then you have Kishek, or I mean uh, Meshek and Kedar in the same passage. So it says the land of Magog is where Satan is going to come from and is connected with Meshek and Tubal. There's a lot of debate as to where those places are, but Meshek, if Meshek is connected with Kedar, then that puts Meshek over here. Maybe even up in the proximity of this lake of fire in Edom. I mean, that'd be interesting if Satan, where is the bottomless pit going to be located? That's where Satan was bound, is the bottomless pit over in Moscow. <laughs> and Satan's bound in Moscow, and then he comes out of the pit in Moscow, and he comes down. I don't know about that. But putting the bottomless pit over here in uh, uh, Edom, or even in Kerioth of Moab, that's an interesting study. That put the bottomless pit right here. That put Satan coming out of the bottomless pit right here. And that would associate Meshach with the tents of Kedar right here. So it could be when Satan gathers his army together, he's coming from this area. He's from the east. And then like Nebuchadnezzar and all and these battles in the Bible, he comes around the Sea of Galilee and comes down from the north. That would put tidings out of the east and out of the north coming against Jesus. So it's interesting. Also... Now, if you don't agree with that, you're probably really not going to agree with this next one. <laughs> but there's an interesting thought. I can't help but wonder sometimes. It's just speculation, okay? But there is some things in the Bible that make me wonder if at the second advent there's going to be a magnetic pull shift of the earth, which is going to cause the earth to change its uh, orientation. And that would... Uh, be very interesting for a number of reasons, but if that happened, then that could reorient the way the earth is positioned, 
during the millennium. And so Satan coming out of the east and out of the north could be in a completely different... We're, we're thinking from the standpoint of the world as we see it now. But if the world was turned upside down, the east and the north would be, you'd never guess it, would actually be Egypt, <laughs> which is interesting. But... Um, that's an interesting study. And as a matter of fact, you say, well, that's retarded, that's ridiculous. Well, you might do some research on the flash-frozen woolly mammoths that they found with food still in their mouths and how it is possible that they could have frozen that quickly. Uh, there seems to be indication that a pole shift has already taken place once before on planet Earth after the flood. So it's interesting to think about. Anyway... Uh, there is one verse in Isaiah that might be referring to the battle of Gog and Magog that uh, puts the coming of the of Satan coming from the east. So we're looking for I'm looking for scriptures that validate this theory about verse 44 being the battle of Gog and Magog. So I've got a verse in Ezekiel 38 that says Satan comes from the north. Now I'm looking for a verse that is there a verse in the Bible that says anything about Satan coming from the east? Well, in Isaiah 46 verse 9 we might have something there. Isaiah 46, verse 9, it says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning. Hmm. Now, what end is he talking about? Like this end? Or is he talking about this end? This is the end end. <laughs> declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. All right, so God is talking about time and prophecy, and he references the end, and then he says this in verse 11, calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. So that's interesting. In the context of prophecy and in the context of the end, God says that he's going to bring a man from the east. And it has to do with prophecy. And whoever this man is, he's likened to a ravenous bird. And this prophecy can apply to Nebuchadnezzar, historically, who is likened to an eagle in Ezekiel 17. But the passage here says the end. And Nebuchadnezzar's attack against Israel was not the end back in 586 B.C. So furthermore, you always have to wonder about God and his double applications. Okay, So Isaiah 46 could, historically, if you wanted to apply it to Nebuchadnezzar, it could kind of fit. But God does this dual application thing where he's talking about one thing, but he's also talking about another thing in type. So it makes you wonder. So maybe there's another application here in regards to the wicked man that will execute the Lord's counsel to come against himself in the end times. Okay? If so, that would give you the east and the north connection, and that would give you the scripture to back up the Gog and Magog application of verse 44. All right? But tidings out of the east and out of the north, wherever that is, is associated with the land of Magog, shall trouble him, Jesus. Therefore he, Jesus, shall go forth with great fury to destroy, to destroy Satan and the rebellious multitude, and to utterly make away many at the battle of Gog and Magog. All right? So as far as the destruction and the making away of many goes, Ezekiel 38 ends with this in verse 21. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains saith the Lord God. All right, so these mountains, they can be the literal mountains of Israel, but remember that in the Bible, mountains can also be a metaphor for kingdoms. So in other words, the Lord might be saying, I will call for a sword against him, against Satan and his army, 
throughout all my mountains, throughout all my Gentile kingdoms. Because remember, the kingdoms of the earth will be the Lord's at the end of the millennium, and they'll be serving him. And there's going to be many people that will rebel against Jesus, and it will be like a giant BLM Antifa group coming against, against Jesus. But uh, the kingdoms, the kingdoms themselves are still the Lord's, and the Lord could, be assemb- could also assemble all his ally kingdoms to come and fight against these rebels. It says in Ezekiel 38, 21, that every man's sword shall be against his brother. Okay? So a lot of times we get this mindset that the Lord's just going to drop this supernatural nuke on these people. There is going to be some of that, <laughs> but the Bible says. But uh, it says that there's also going to be some fighting, some warfare. And every man's sword will be against his brother at this time period. And uh, all these people, you think about it, all these people that lived together during the millennium, they were all kind of getting along, they were all together, but at the end of the millennium, those who are loyal to Jesus are going to be fighting against those who rebel against King Jesus. Kind of like how Moses commanded the Levites to execute their brethren who worshipped the golden calf back there in the book of Exodus. As Exodus chapter 20, uh, 32 verse 26 says, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. We might have a similar thing stated right here. Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and their fellow the people that day about 3,000 men. So maybe there could be some typology going on there. Also, the, uh, the, the Haman's decree against the Jews that you read about in the book of Esther and uh, the Jews standing up for themselves and fighting these rebels who tried to come against them, that could also possibly be a type of this battle of Gog and Magog, perhaps. Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 22 goes on to say, And I will plead against him, speaking of Gog, or this name that's uh, a reference to Satan at this time, I will speak against him, Gog, with pestilence and with blood, and I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him an overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. And Revelation 20 verse 9 says, Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And in verse 23 it says, Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And so in that chapter, one of the arguments against this interpretation of it being over here is like, well, why doesn't everybody know that Jesus is the Lord? I mean, he's been ruling and reigning for a thousand years. Why would it say, and they shall know that I am am the Lord? Well, you have to remember that these rebels are born into a world where Jesus was already king before they were born. This is the only life they know. So there's going to be a number of people that might be in, under the impression that, well, maybe, what if Jesus isn't Lord? What if this, ru- this person who rules, what if uh, he's not the true king? You know, you think about it, they're grown up with a, a particular idea in mind, and there might be some people that might start thinking, well, maybe that's not right. You know, the only thing they know is his dominion, and they might start wondering if he really is the true king. I mean, after all, they'll likely hear rumors that there used to be This mighty king who let people do whatever they wanted. You know, if they wanted to get drunk, he would allow it. 
if they wanted to get high on drugs, he would allow it. If, he want, if you wanted to fornicate with as many women as you wanted, he would let you do it. And, uh, you know, if someone wanted to cut corners to get ahead in business or just kind of do whatever, is, whatever it took to get rich, he would let you do it. There used to be this great and mighty king who was all about freedom. But the king of the earth, who reigns in Jerusalem, he banished this king and locked him away. And he was locked away. And so you could see how this mental virus could start to spread among a population of people. These people, they weren't alive during the tribulation period. They, don't, they, they have no clue about the actual cruelty of the Antichrist, and they are clueless as to how good they actually have it. <laughs> Typical of human nature. This is going to be the greatest time the world's ever known, and yet there's going to be a bunch of uh, disgruntled people thinking that the grass is greener on the other side, and wishing that there was this king that they'd heard rumors about, that uh, hopefully he'll come back, right? And so out of discontent and unthankfulness, they desire change, change. Proverbs 24, 21. My son, fear thou the Lord and the king, and meddle not with them that are given to change. For their calamity shall rise suddenly, and who knoweth the ruin of them both? But tidings out of the east and out of the north okay, shall trouble him. Therefore he, Jesus, shall go forth with great fury to destroy, and utterly to make away many of the battle of Gog and Magog. So at the battle of Gog and Magog, uh, the fire devours the enemy and also destroys the universe. And then you have the great white throne judgment that follows, according to Revelation chapter 20. And then God creates a new heaven and a new earth. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse and chapter 22, and by the way, uh, you don't have to worry about God's people getting destroyed and being annihilated at this time or anything like that. Just like uh, God preserved his people in the flood with Noah and the ark, so God will preserve his people at this time. The Bible says that when God creates the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven, and in that city is the church, and in that city are all his people and it's almost like New, New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven is like God's version of Noah's Ark. Something like that. Alright? So, then, uh, the way I would interpret this verse 45 and my Jesus being the king of the north theory is I would say that verse 44 is the battle of Gog and Magog. And then verse 45 is simply a final summary. Let's look at verse 45. And he, this is how I would interpret this theory, and he, Jesus, shall plant the tabernacles of his, Jesus' palace, between the seas, that'd be between the Mediterranean Sea and the revived Dead Sea. The Bible talks about the Dead Sea being revived, I think, in Ezekiel 47. So his palace is in Jerusalem, and, uh, and in the glorious holy mountain, Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Yet he... The Antichrist, I would interpret that he is the Antichrist, shall come to his end. You could even say Satan, I suppose, if you wanted put that in there. Shall come to his end, and none shall help, none shall save, none shall deliver him. The Antichrist, or son of perdition, or Satan, any of those would work right there. All right? So, as you recall from our earlier lessons, insertion of summaries is a common thing in Daniel chapter 11. We saw that in verse 12, verse 17, verse 33 through verse 35, and so on and so forth. It's not uncommon in Daniel chapter 11 for you to be reading along in a chronology, and then boom, there's a summary that's stuck in there that 
kind of references back what you were reading. We've, we've already gone through that, so I think that's what's happening here in verse 45. All right, also, uh, verse 45, I would say that would, in order to interpret the verse this way, it would require some pronoun switching. So the first pronouns are referring to Jesus dwelling in the holy mountain uh, and Jesus planning the tabernacles of his palace between the seas, and then the pronoun would have to shift and say, yet he, the Antichrist, or Satan, shall come to his end, and none shall help him. Okay, So I realize you have to have, in order for my interpretation to be correct, you got to shift those pronouns in that verse. But at the same time, that's not a problem either, because we've seen pronouns shifting back and forth throughout Daniel chapter 11. That was one of the very first things I pointed out in this study, that you have pronouns shifting around, and you got to watch out, because it'll change without warning. And you also see that in numerous other places throughout the Bible. So interpreting verse, verse 45 like this, I don't think is that big of a deal. Uh, otherwise, what you have in verse 45, if you're going to say, well, I don't agree with Matt's theory on that, I'm going to go with the Egypt rebellion theory. Okay, well, that's fine. If you want to have verse 45 as the Antichrist setting up his tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, you can do, and yet he, the Antichrist, shall come to his end. If you want to, if you want to have all of verse 45 referring to the Antichrist, then you can do that, but again, you're going to have to have verse 40 through verse 44, some random Egyptian king rebelling against the Antichrist during the Great Tribulation, and then verse 45 just gives you a little smidgen of a notation, a little footnote about the Second Advent. Like, you get three or four verses on this random Egyptian rebellion that you don't read about anywhere else in the Bible, and then the Second Advent, the Day of the Lord, the day that's spoken of throughout all the Bible gets barely a little footnote, yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. That's all you get of the second advent in Daniel chapter 11? I don't know. To me, it just... I think that doesn't work. <laughs> okay? So, as I've said, if it... it uh, well, anyway. Um, I've read uh, many interpretations of verses 40 through verse 45, and most of them, most of these interpretations, if you go online, if you get commentaries, what you're going to find is verse 40 through verse 45, most, well, a lot of people try to interpret it in terms of a historical context. They, Bible correctors especially, super arrogant Bible scholars will try to say, well, verse 44 through verse 45 is referring to Antiochus Epiphanes and is actually just a mistake by whoever the author of the book of Daniel is, because we don't believe Daniel actually wrote the book of Daniel. So whoever wrote this during the time of the Maccabees made a prediction about what was going to happen with Antiochus Epiphanes, but he was wrong. And so verse 40 through verse 45 is actually incorrect history. Okay, so that's one of the ways that most people interpret it. Another way is the allegorical interpretation, which again, as I've said, is stupid, because you have the entire chapter, this absolute literal history, and then verse 40 through verse 45 is some vague an ambiguous allegorical moral lesson that you're going to try to reinterpret all these words as why we should be a good person. That's just, it's silly. It's, uh, it's not just silly, it's stupid. All right. And the other, <laughs> I don't have a problem with saying that because that's ridiculous. Let's just be honest. All right. So there's only two literal interpretations, Bible believing interpretations that I know of. The Egypt rebellion theory and this theory that I've taught, the Jesus being the king of the north theory, which, for whatever it's worth, I have never read anybody else who have ever, who's ever interpreted verse 40 through verse 45 as the second advent, battle of Gog and Magog, 
I've never heard that before. But I, in my opinion, I think it fits a little bit better. But let's just face it, out of those two Bible-believing interpretations, one at least has Scripture to back it up. The other has zero Scripture to back it up. All right? That's just a fact. So neither are perfect, and there's potential flaws in both. But like I said, there's Scripture to back up what I'm trying to teach here. And it's consistent with the story of prophecy throughout the rest of the Bible. All right? So that's it. That includes the... Uh, this in-depth study of Daniel chapter 11, I don't particularly like that it took me 33 lessons to do it, but I did say from the beginning that it was going to be an epic Bible study, okay? So let me conclude this series with just a few final thoughts, okay? This was a long study, but let's just face it, it is without a doubt a rare study, okay? In my 25 years of being in Bible-believing churches and going in institutes, Bible institutes, and all that stuff, I personally have never one time in my life heard an in-depth study of Daniel chapter 11 in any church or any Bible institute that I've been to. So teaching through Daniel chapter 11 was something on my personal bucket list. Now, uh, maybe you have heard somebody go through an in-depth study of Daniel chapter 11. That's great. I've personally never heard that, and that's incredible to me, Be 25 years 25 years. I've never heard it one time. Okay. It's always just been really just glossed over. And part of the reason why this chapter in Daniel 11 is rarely dived into is because number one, it really is a huge study. If you're going to really go into the detail and find out what all of this is talking about, it is a massive study that includes a ton of work in reading and digging up all kinds of historical information. You have to do a lot of research in order to really understand historical reading, in order to fully teach what's going on here in Daniel chapter 11. And also, there's a lot of complicated uh, terminology and wording in the chapter, making the interpretation of the text difficult. And then there's also a lot of uncertainty and debate, even among Bible believers, as to the timing of what these verses are talking about and the prophecies involved. And so it's a very, very complicated chapter to tackle. And it's easier, you know, so you don't get into a lot of trouble. <laughs> I, I'm not too worried about going against the, the mainline teachings. I don't, I, as you know, that doesn't bother me. I'm more interested in the truth than tradition. So, but, but, for, but for a lot of people, it's just like, I'd just rather not deal with that. Let's just kind of skim over it. Yeah, this is talking about history and the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and the Maccabees, and then let's get into the tribulation, all right? And so it's a lot of just kind of glossed over, and you don't, consequently, hardly anybody knows what Daniel chapter 11 is even talking about. It's just a big question mark when you come to it. I know that's how it's been for me for many years, all right? So because not many KJV Bible believers have tackled Daniel 11 in detail, it was necessary for me to spend a lot of extra time on the details of the text. And I also had to dismantle some things, some teachings that were wrong, blatantly wrong, uh, that Daniel chapter 11 has been used to, to teach. So that's part of the reason why this series took so long. I realized one chapter took 33 weeks. That's over half a year. That's crazy. But that's part of the reason. Number two, uh, it was a long study, but we did, for what it's worth, cover a lot of different topics. Okay, 
I try not to be overly, overly repetitive. I'd thoroughly cover a subject when I got to it and then give a quick recap at the beginning of each lesson. And some subjects did overlap a little bit, but I did try to make an effort not to be overly repetitive. And then also, number three, it was a long study. But I am certain that anybody who watched these lessons learned something. I know I did. I learned a ton of stuff from my study of this, of my personal study trying to figure this out. I learned all kinds of things in this study, and I trust you did too. Um, if, and if you've been with me through this whole series, take just a second to reflect back on all the things that you've learned, all the things that you've heard that you haven't heard before. And I know you haven't heard those things before because I know for a fact some of the things that I've brought forward in this study I've never even heard before. But I am convinced are correct based on the scriptures. All right, and also take a consider the new concepts that, that I proposed that you might not agree with, but at least it gave you opportunity to stop and think about some things. I always think that's a positive. All right, and then number four, this was a long study, but now you can finally say that you know what Daniel chapter 11 is actually talking about. Isn't that nice? <laughs> you will never read Daniel chapter 11 the same way again. I promise you. And you know that. If you've, if you've been with me, if you've endured until the end, you will never read Daniel chapter 11 the same again. And I'm sure you already knew that God's prophecy is incredible, but the intricate detail of Daniel chapter 11 takes the awesomeness of God's word to a whole nother level. All right. So finally, I apologize if this study was tedious to you. That was never my intent. But doing an in-depth study of this caliber did require uh, the length of time that it took. So don't worry. I'll be shifting gears in the next lessons. But for those of you who love history, who love prophecy, and love in-depth Bible study, I trust that this series on Daniel chapter 11 was a treat. And I hope that God was glorified through my presentation of Daniel chapter 11. I hope that you are edified and blessed by it. And Lord willing, I will make an attempt to publish this information someday. <laughs> but uh, in the meantime, be sure I'll probably take one week off and then get into a new series of lessons. They won't be 33 weeks long, don't worry. But I'm going to take next week off. And then I'm going to get into a series of lessons that the title of which I'm going to call the Christian concubine. But you'll have to tune in next time to see what that's all about. God's grace be with you, and have a good week.